Hi, everybody. So, a funny story. I wrote a Crimes of the Centuries book. I think it's my seventh publication, though I have no problem telling you that there are only like four books that I'd actually want you to read. This is one of them. It's coming out January 16th, 2024. I'll be doing reading at this year's Obsessed Fest. And I want you to know that the book is available for pre-order right now at centuriespod.com slash book. I worked really hard to make it something that you'd like, even if you know the episodes verbatim. So there are a lot of new details and some deeper research that I'm really proud of. So if books are your bag, please consider going to centuriespod.com slash book. Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. When the world first heard that the great-grandson of American founding father Alexander Hamilton was mired in controversy, the tale seemed to be centered on murder. Robert Ray Hamilton's wife had been arrested and charged with stabbing the wet nurse the couple had employed to feed their firstborn, a daughter named Beatrice. Eva Hamilton at first was charged with atrocious assault for the brutal stabbing, But the nurse's condition was so touch-and-go that everyone was sure the charge would be upgraded to murder any day now. That, in turn, would land a member of one of the country's wealthiest and most prominent families in prison, if not on the gallows. Reported the Pittsburgh headlight in a story from Atlantic City, New Jersey, quote, There is nothing talked about in this city by the sea except the stabbing sensation in which Robert Ray Hamilton figures so strangely. Around the guarded cottage where the stabbing occurred, there was a tremendous crowd and hundreds of persons stood for hours gazing at the windows and doors of the house as if they sought to learn something new from their appearance. Mary Ann Donnelly, the nurse whom Mrs. Hamilton slashed with her ivory-handled dagger, is still lying in a dangerous state, and great fears that peritonitis will set in are entertained, end quote. But the nurse proved to be a fighter. Marianne Donnelly ultimately survived the knife Eva had plunged into her abdomen in a fit of rage on August 26, 1889. That stroke of luck could have marked the end of the tawdry headlines, but it didn't. Instead, it was but a blip and one of the most scandalous and enduring crimes of the late 19th century, one that would land on front pages nationwide time and again for well over two years. The Hamilton family tree went like this. Alexander and Eliza, you know, the ones of American history and musical theater fame, had eight children, seven of whom were still alive when Alexander was killed in the infamous duel by one Aaron Burr. Sir, 
One of those surviving children was a guy named John Church Hamilton, who was 12 years old when he lost his father. He dedicated much of his life to editing his father's writings, eventually publishing them in a seven-volume collection. I'm honestly not sure how he found the time for all of that when considering that he and his wife had 14 flipping children together, among the most prominent of whom was a son named Skyler. Skyler, born in 1822, was fifth born to his parents. He served during the Mexican-American War, becoming a general, then later served for the Union in the Civil War. His health began failing him, though, so he was forced to resign his post, after which he still made headlines as a rich retiree. Schuyler and his wife, Cornelia Ray, had three children, the youngest of whom was a boy named Charles, who died of natural causes at just 17 years old. The two older boys were Robert Ray and Schuyler Jr., born in 1851 and 1853, respectively. And now, with Robert Ray and Schuyler Jr., we've made it to the Hamilton generation involved in today's story. Robert Ray had been named after his mother's father, and he became an attorney, a state legislator in Albany, and a real estate developer. Everybody called him Ray. At one point, Ray owned 32 different either properties or building lots in Manhattan and Brooklyn. This is Bill Schaefer, who wrote the book The Scandalous Hamiltons. I write in the beginning of the book that the Hamilton name at that time was a little bit akin to the Kennedy name today. It was uh, Hamilton's and the descendants of Alexander Hamilton were all prominent New Yorkers. They were uh, financiers, prominent business people, philanthropists. And so it wasn't uncommon to, to see stories about various Hamiltons, kind of as, as you would go through a newspaper on a day-to-day basis. Ray had long been considered one of the most eligible bachelors, a sort of JFK Jr. of his day. He was handsome, with dark hair and a bushy mustache that women found distinguished. And he was rich, without being a cad, which tends to be a plus. By the late 1880s, it was apparent that Ray wasn't in any hurry to get hitched, much to the disappointment of many ladies sharing his social standing. He just didn't seem to be the settling-down type. One woman knew this better than most. Her name was Eva Steele. So Ray met a woman, Eva, who was raised in the backwoods of Northeast Pennsylvania, And she could not have come from more different circumstances than Ray in that uh, she was born to an itinerant woodcutter, guys who were cutting down trees so their railroad tracks could be laid to haul coal out of the, what was called the Wyoming Valley uh, in Pennsylvania. He was an alcoholic, moved his six children around from town to town, wherever work, you know, could be found. She didn't go to school past the fourth grade. The consensus in her village was that she was, quote, not going to be bright. Which, in fairness, seems pretty shitty of the people in her village. She wasn't very educated, what with having dropped out of school so early. But come on now. Anyway, having a subpar education did not set Eva up for an especially highbrow life, and she eventually took work at a brothel where she was a so-called sporting girl. And that's where her path in life intersected with the great-grandson of Lin-Manuel Miranda's favorite founding father. 
They met in what was sometimes referred to as a body house. Eva was a sex worker. It wasn't uncommon for men of raised stature at that time to visit a prostitute on, on their way home from, you know, their day at the office and drinks at the union league or the university club with their friends. And that's how you, you might end an evening. The two met in 1885 and clicked from the beginning. Their relationship lasted for years. Ray saw Eva whenever he was in town and lavished her with money and gifts to ensure she was as comfortable as possible when he was away. He even happily provided money to two of Eva's closest friends, a woman Eva referred to as her grandmother, but who was really of no blood relation. That woman, named Anna Swinton, was mother of Josh Mann, Eva's other close friend, who she said was a quote-unquote imbecile after enduring head trauma some years prior. Actually, describing Josh as a close friend doesn't really cover it. While she was in this relationship with Ray, she was in a common law marriage with Josh Mann. The best way to describe him is basically kind of a drunken buffoon. I'm not sure if this is fair or not, but when I was reading Schaefer's book, I kept picturing Eva and Josh on par with the Sharon Stone-James Woods relationship in Casino. As in, he was kind of a loser and they didn't quite make sense together, but she had her own issues and just couldn't seem to shake him. Josh was non-threatening enough that it never even occurred to Ray that maybe he should be concerned about his wife's relationship with this man, who, by the way, was nicknamed Dottie by his mother, Anna. Anyway, Josh was Eva's constant companion. When Ray wasn't around and he wasn't around a lot, she would be with Josh. As Eva and Ray's relationship continued over the course of four years, Eva became more and more vocal about her wish to get married. Ray didn't seem interested. Until one day in April 1888, when he learned life-altering news from his longtime lover. Eva was pregnant, she said, and due to give birth in the winter. It so happened that Ray wouldn't be around much for the pregnancy because he was in New York State Assemblyman and his busy season was getting underway just as Eva was to begin her second trimester. He still would have been around now and then, but Eva asked a favor. She worried about how her life would change with her impending motherhood, so she asked Ray to fund a trip for her to Europe, sort of final hurrah before the responsibilities of parenting seized her. Ray said sure, and off Eva went for several months. It's worth noting that Josh went on this trip with Eva too. Ray wasn't aware of this detail until much later. Once Eva returned from this trip, she still would have had a bit more pregnancy ahead of her. In this era, though, it was common for pregnant women to spend their third trimesters on bed rest at a family member's house. Can you imagine, by the way, I literally covered a court hearing on my due date. Nowadays, even women ordered to take bed rest toward the end of their pregnancy feel guilty actually doing it. But in the late 1800s, this was commonplace, especially for women of means, which Eva wouldn't have been, except that her pregnancy had finally convinced Ray to make her his bride. About three weeks after Eva introduced Ray to his baby daughter, on January 7, 1889, the couple left the newborn with a caregiver and crossed the Hudson River into Patterson, New Jersey, where they were married by the Reverend Edson Burr. No relation to Aaron Burr, who had killed Ray's great-grandpappy. 
Ray was 38 years old to Eva's 29, making the two of them both older than average for first-time spouses. Because no one accompanied the couple to the ceremony, Reverend Burr's wife and mother-in-law served as the legal witnesses required to make the union official. No one in Ray's circle knew he was involved seriously with a woman, much less married, and a new father to boot. To cushion these blows for his family, while also disguising his new wife's sex-working past, the new family traveled west to California, from which Ray eventually wrote letters to his father and siblings announcing that he'd met a woman, the two were married, and oh, by the way, I'm a dad. His father, Skyler, alerted Ray's brother, Skyler Jr., who in turn wrote to Ray on August 7th, 1889, quote, Sometime in the future, if agreeable to you, I would like to run down and see the family. I think my little niece will find a tender spot in my heart for her. What is her name? I hope your wife and little one may add much happiness to your life. End quote. He had no idea that the news he was applauding would soon bring great shame, followed by unthinkable tragedy to his family. The first time Ray Hamilton met his daughter, Beatrice, she was a wee newborn, definitely on the delicate side of the health spectrum. Eva's milk hadn't come in and formula was years away still, so the baby struggled to thrive at first. Before returning to his home in the city, Ray gave his wife the go-ahead to hire a wet nurse, which was fairly common for a family of the Hamilton stature. In New York, Eva hired wet nurse Mary Ann Donnelly, who accompanied the Hamiltons to California. By the time of that trip, Beatrice looked like a new child. Her features had shifted, her ears seemed far bigger, and all in all, she seemed healthy. Eva, on the other hand, did not. In the mere months since she'd moved out west, she lost a ton of weight, a good 40 pounds. She seemed weak and delicate. And on top of that, her mood was increasingly unstable. As the months passed, she and Ray began to bicker more and more, as did Eva and Marianne, the wet nurse. Both women were prone to drink, and both had tempers that found fuel in booze. Ray, time and again, had to intervene between the women to keep spats from becoming physically violent. Finally, Ray seemed to realize this arrangement wasn't sustainable, and he, Eva, Beatrice, and Marianne began traveling back east with the aim of moving back to the city. Then came the near-fatal fight that upended everything. The date was August 26, 1889, and things in the family had been tense for days. Ray told Eva that the marriage wasn't working. He basically said, look, I want a divorce. I'll give you $5,000 a year to care for Beatrice, but we can't keep on like this. Eva refused. At some point, Marianne involved herself in the argument, and Marianne wasn't a huge fan of Eva's to begin with, so her entering the mix was destined to be bad news. Eva became incensed. They were, Eva and the nurse were both drunk by 10 o'clock in the morning. Eva sent the nurse out at 7 a.m. to buy a bottle of whiskey, uh, which they both were drinking from. And the argument was settled by Eva picking up a knife and stabbing the nurse. She collapsed on the floor in a pool of blood. The police quickly arrived and arrested Eva, who readily admitted to the stabbing, and expressed regret that Marianne was still breathing. By that evening, 
reporters from the New York newspapers, Philadelphia newspapers, Baltimore newspapers, essentially who could ever, who could get on a train and be there by late afternoon was there. And the next morning, headlines were splashed across the country, front page headlines about, with the Hamilton name in it, that Hamilton's wife stabs baby nurse, basically, uh, some variation of that. And it set off quite the scandal. Here was the Hamilton name in the newspapers for all of the wrong reasons. A sampling of some headlines murdered her servant, because remember Marianne Donnelly was expected to die. The terrible deed of the wife of Robert Ray Hamilton. She's a terror. The wife of Robert Ray Hamilton disembowels a nurse with a Mexican dagger. Mrs. Hamilton goes to jail. Now, at first, it seemed the big scandal was the stabbing. But those journalists who descended quickly uncovered that the stabbing was but a detail in an even more salacious story. If you've been paying attention, you might be like, oh, right, Eva had been a sex worker, so that must be the even bigger scandal, right? That a fancy-schmancy Hamilton married a sporting girl? Nope. That, too, was just another tidbit in the tawdry pie. The meat of the thing was this. Ray had been duped. Eva had never been pregnant. And more than that, the baby Ray had accepted as his daughter was actually the fourth child Eva had bought from a baby farm for the sole purpose of tricking Ray into marrying her. The first two babies had actually died because Eva had been too stupid to figure out that she, as a non-pregnant woman, had no hope of producing the milk she needed to keep a baby alive, and within days of buying each child, they starved to death. The third baby didn't die, but was so obviously different appearance-wise from the first two that Eva was certain Ray would recognize it as a different human being altogether. The fourth baby wasn't identical to the first ones, but it was close enough. Eva's only reservation with that infant was that its ears stuck out nearly perpendicular to its head, which, had Ray been paying enough attention, might have tipped him off to his wife's deception, but the feature went unnoticed. The fourth baby had been raised as Beatrice Hamilton for the better part of a year prior to the stabbing. Ray had been completely in the dark. I don't have any evidence that it ever dawned on him that this might not be everything she's saying it is. And if she hadn't stabbed Marianne Donnelly, the truth might never have come out. But she did, and within mere days, the whole house of cards came tumbling down. Ray hired a guy named Thomas Burns, who was chief of detectives for the New York City Police Department. He was a hell of an investigator with a malfunctioning moral compass. It was said that six guys couldn't pull a heist in New York without two of them being in Tommy's pocket. Uh, he worked both sides of the fence. He had a salary of $5,000 a year, but a bank account in his wife's name that held $250,000. Uh, which he explained were gratuities paid to him per, from Wall Street businessmen for keeping uh, them safe. But Tommy knew everybody. And, and three days uh, after Eva was charged stabbing, he is the one who found out that Beatrice was not Ray's child, that she had been purchased. Burns nailed down this information by interviewing Eva's friends, the mother and son duo of Anna Swinton and Josh Mann, 
and getting confessions from both of them. As soon as he landed those confessions, Burns read them almost verbatim to gathered reporters, who in turn wrote jaw-dropping stories that landed on front pages nationwide. This, this kind of had everything. It was a big deal at that time for a, for a story to command a full column on page one. Ray and Eva were full columns page one every day for months and stories that even continued into the interior pages, which was virtually unheard of at the time. Until this revelation, the story had been big. Now it was gigantic. Headlines referred to Ray as Eva's quote-unquote deluded husband. The New York Sun reported that, quote, Robert Ray Hamilton's romance was a very common affair indeed, and that he had allied himself for no conceivable reason except blind infatuation with a vulgar and disreputable woman, addicted to various low habits and associated with a gang of commonplace hangers-on, end quote. The Sun reported that Josh Mann was not her friend, but rather her lover, who was also a drunkard who would appear at the Hamilton house as soon as Ray went to work. Multiple people said they knew Josh and Eva as man and wife. They rented rooms together as such, and banked together, and introduced each other as spouses. Marianne Donnelly apparently had caught on to this. After all, she was often around when Ray was at work giving her ample opportunity to see Josh and Eva together. Marianne apparently wondered whether Beatrice was really Ray Hamilton's daughter. Whether she knew about the scam for sure, just suspected it isn't clear. But regardless, she supposedly threatened Eva that she planned to tell Ray that Beatrice was neither of their biological daughters, which might well have played into Eva's decision to stab her in the gut. As the case officially entered the court system, the public couldn't seem to get enough. A Canton Independent Sentinel story began, quote, Never before in the history of this gay watering resort did a crime excite such absorbing interest as that of the wife of Robert Ray Hamilton, the wealthy young New Yorker, and never before was our unpretentious city hall crowded by such an eager throng of people as it was when the prisoners were brought before Judge Irving for a preliminary hearing. The wealthy guests from the big hotels forgot their accustomed dignity and reserve and jolted and pushed in amongst the plebeian throng, questioning right and left and peering at the well-dressed and aristocratic-looking Robert Ray Hamilton, the scion of one of the oldest, wealthiest, and proudest of New York families, and his handsome wife, richly dressed and jewel-bedecked, who sat weeping by his side with her head leaning heavily on the walnut rail which surrounded the magistrate's platform, End quote. When the case was just a stabbing, Hamilton seemed poised to stand by his wife. Once he learned about Beatrice's provenance, however, all of that changed. Ray knew about 72 hours after the stabbing that the whole thing was a scam, and he absolutely did not stand by Eva, didn't even come close in her courtroom appearances. He wouldn't look at her. She would reach out to him to try to explain herself. And he just, uh, he literally and figuratively turned his back on her. Ray was utterly humiliated, as was the rest of his family, though they didn't turn their backs on him. They could have, what with the stigma that surrounded sex workers, of course, 
But Ray got letters of support from his father and brother. General Schuyler, as in dad, not brother, in particular made a point in his letters to compliment Ray's demeanor throughout the trial against Eva, which began in September of 1889. On September 6th, Ray took the stand and told the court that he had never doubted Eva when she told him she was pregnant. He had trusted her and, once introduced, had cherished the infant he believed to be his child. The publication The Nebraska Farmer described Hamilton's testimony as appearing more like a confession, which he gave with a bowed head. As often as he could, he referred to his wife coldly as the defendant. Eva took the stand in her own defense, too, but it probably didn't go the way she had hoped. As soon as the prosecuting attorney began asking questions about where Beatrice had been born and whether Eva was really the child's mother, Eva seemed to trip over how to answer before finally declining to answer at all on the grounds it might incriminate herself. It took two hours for the jury to deliberate. They found Eva guilty of atrocious assault. Yep, that was the actual legal charge and sentenced her to two years in prison. Apparently, atrocious assault made more sense back in the day than, I don't know, attempted murder. And for his part, Hamilton left the courthouse quickly, filed paperwork to get his marriage annulled, and headed west on a hunting trip meant to clear his head. For what it's worth, Ray did not turn his back on baby Beatrice, not entirely anyway. He took no steps to take the baby back in as his own, but he had bonded with her over the months he'd thought he was her father, and he seemed to recognize that she had done nothing wrong to warrant being shunned by him. As such, he sent gifts to the woman who'd been caring for the baby since Eva's arrest, and he also adjusted his will to include an annuity meant to take care of the child in the event of his death. Meanwhile, he cut Eva out entirely. But that was easier said than done in New York at the time because a married woman was entitled to what was called dower rights, amounting to a third of her husband's estate. Ray expected this matter to resolve itself with the annulment he applied for, but the year 1890 didn't unfold the way he probably expected. For starters, Eva contested the annulment from prison, insisting that she was Ray's legitimate wife and declaring bogus the testimony that suggested she'd been common-law married to Josh Mann. As that legal battle was just beginning, Ray kept himself busy with a new venture. Basically, he wanted to build a grand hunting lodge. He found some land across from the Tetons in Wyoming on Jackson Lake, that seemed ideal. Soon after that, he found himself a business partner, a man named John Dudley Sargent. The two were both East Coasters who'd met at Yale years earlier. Together, they developed plans to create a lodge called Merrymere. The construction was going along well. Ray went off, uh, decided that it was going well enough that he would go off on a little hunting trip by himself. All of the guys working at the camp said, don't do that. You don't know the territory well enough. And Ray insisted on doing it. No one worried when Ray didn't return straight away. But after a few days passed, they started to wonder. Sergeant gathered a party to search for him and found his horse, atop of which was tied parts of an antelope that Ray must have shot in field dress during his hunting expedition. But there was no sign of Ray. After a few more days of searching, 
One of the volunteers spotted a bloated corpse in a shallow pool of water caught in the branches of fallen pines. Though he'd been in water decomposing for days, the body was easily recognized as Ray Hamilton thanks to the bushy mustache. It was almost a year to the day after the stabbing that had caused the man's life to unravel. Conspiracy theories were inevitable. Some people thought that Ray kind of uh, might have faked these circumstances to just go off and get lost for a couple of years and kind of come back with a new identity. There were all kinds of crazy theories floating around out there. Including one that suggested maybe Ray had been killed by his new business partner. John Dudley Sargent was said to be an eccentric, moody fellow, to say the least. In the end, though, an inquiry determined that Ray had likely gotten tied up in some underbrush and unfamiliar territory, resulting in his tragic but accidental death. He'd been warned not to go hunting alone, and he'd ignored the advice, costing him his life. This was potentially good news for Eva, because her contestation of the annulment was still pending, meaning she was legally still Ray's wife at the time of his death, which should have entitled her to about one-third of his estate. Ray's family, however, wasn't too keen on giving her a dime, so they fought her in court. And that set off uh, a whole new months-long saga of newspaper stories. You know, she loved attention. She loved being the center of everything. And so the newspapers would report, you know, what she was wearing every day to court, how she made her court entrances, if whatever was happening in court, you know, might be, it would be to her sympathy to, you know, cry or show tears. She would turn on the tears. Uh, if she needed to be indifferent or angry, she could be that too. So it was all, in a way, kind of an act for her. But she really wanted the money. And the Hamilton family went to great lengths to prevent that. They were basically saying because she was in a common law marriage, her marriage to Ray was invalid. Eventually, it went to the New York State Supreme Court. Uh, they sided with Ray's family. Eva was nothing if not determined, however, and she somehow managed to quote-unquote find a scrap of paper on which Ray supposedly promised her a small fortune. Instead of continuing the fight, the Hamilton family gave Eva $10,000 to just go away, which she did. In his will, Ray had allotted $100 a month, or $1,200 a year, to go toward caring for Beatrice Hamilton. For about 10 years, that's what happened. The poor girl was bounced from one guardian to another, but at least those guardians had money to take care of her. After about 10 years, however, Hamilton's family said that the money to care for Beatrice had run out. A judge agreed, after which Beatrice was cut off. The girl apparently changed her name as an adult, and while Schaefer, the author, believes he tracked down her descendants, they had asked him not to identify her because she had never been comfortable talking about her early years. She moved about as far away from New York as you could and remained in the United States. And by all accounts, you know, had a healthy and full life. She had children and grandchildren and lived to an old age. Eva spent much of the rest of her life out of the spotlight, too, outside of an 1899 arrest for supposedly getting drunk 
and indecently high-kicking with another woman at a tavern. The case didn't stick. Five years later, Eva made headlines yet again, this time for dying a pauper on November 23, 1904. She succumbed to alcohol-related heart disease in the charity ward of a Greenwich Village hospital. One postscript to this story? In his will, Ray Hamilton left $10,000 to have a fountain built in New York City in his honor. Granted, he surely didn't expect his death to happen in such close proximity to the recent scandals he'd endured, but it did. And his family wasn't thrilled with that. After all, Ray, as much as they loved him, had tarnished the family's name with his shenanigans. As such, they didn't complain when it took a good decade for the city to finally move forward on the fountain, which ultimately was built at 76th Street and Riverside Drive. A plaque is attached to a nearby lamppost explaining the origin of the fountain, detailing who Ray was, and mentioning a, quote, public scandal involving Eva Mann, who he had secretly married, and who had used this alliance to raid his substantial financial holdings. End quote. To research this story, I read Bill Schaefer's The Scandalous Hamiltons, A Gilded Age Grifter, A Founding Father's Disgraced Descendant, and A Trial at the Dawn of Tabloid Journalism. I also watched several talks given by Bill Schaefer. In addition, I spent lots of time in the old newspaper archives reading contemporary coverage, which included an exclusive interview with Eva by legendary muckraker Nellie Bly. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 